I'll dismiss the school-age kids to the back. And uh, as they go, I'll invite you to open up your Bibles, if you brought one with you, to uh, Philippians chapter 1. And that's one of Paul's letters. If you're not really sure where that's at, you can find it in the, uh, the little front table of contents or just kind of flip towards the back of the Bible. You'll find it just a little book back there. And uh, before we jump into Philippians, we are walking through that book. We've been in it for about a month <clears throat> now. Um, I want to just kind of recap uh, last night. We had a, uh, a vision and worship night. It was about 20 minutes of casting vision, and the rest of the night we just worshiped. It was really pretty incredible. Um, but it really, most of the night, uh, the, actually the update part was just some shifts in the church, and then I kind of caught everyone up to date uh, with where we're at in the building process. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but some of you are new here. We purchased a uh, plot of land on Benton Road uh, the end of last year, and we've been trying to figure out a way that we could build a permanent space on that. As a church, we have been mobile for 12 years. That means 12 years we've been setting up curtains every week and, uh, and chairs and sound, and uh, we pull two 20-foot trailers um, every week, and so we are excited about permanently putting some roots in and building a facility that will facilitate the mission. And so we did a uh, church-wide giving initiative called Above and Beyond, and many of you are sacrificially giving to that, so let me just say thank you for doing that. And as we get closer to the day of hopefully breaking ground uh, sometime this fall, I'm just going to give you an update. Uh, i got a couple slides up here, the renderings about it. There's some pages in the back you can pick up on your way out if you want to actually see what that is. Uh, you can just cycle through those. And the reason I want to uh, kind of update you is because you have been so heavily invested in this. And so many of you have. And that's exciting. Next, uh, to give us a chance to thank God for his faithfulness. Where God guides, he provides. When we started this, we thought we needed this amount of money, and because of inflation and interest rates, we actually need this amount of money. And so I came to you about a couple months ago and said, we're going to start another kind of giving initiative inside the above and beyond that would maybe tap into the resources of other people outside the church, people who love us and care for us, people who've been at this church for a while and have moved on to other cities and such. And so we started this thing called Faithful 40, trying to find 40 people to give a certain amount of money. And I've met with a couple donors, um, and one donor gave $50,000, which is pretty incredible, and we thank God for that. Then I met another donor when I was on my, uh, my study break and uh, over in Dallas uh, talking to them, and I asked for another $50,000 from this donor, and they said, let me pray about it. And they called me back just a few hours later and said, you know what? God's really moved in my heart. I want to give $200,000 to the thing. Yeah, come on. What's up with that? So... The check hasn't come in, so I pray they come through, right? <laughs> Any of us can write a $200,000 check with our mouth. Uh, let's see what happens. No, I'm, I'm sure it is, and we're just excited. We do have some faithful 40 brochures. Maybe you know some people. Maybe your parents, uh, maybe extended relatives or someone you know would like to um, help us in that endeavor. So that's going to be on your back table on the way out. Two more things. Uh, the reason I mention this is because some of you have come around since Easter when we did this, and maybe you want to get on board and the above and beyond. Uh, again, there's paperwork in the back. Uh, I, I'll tell you, we asked our people, we challenged our church to ask this question, God, what would you have me do? And just risk obedience to whatever that is, whether that's financial, whether it's uh, some other step of obedience. I pray all of us hear from God today of what step of obedience he would have in front of us. Lastly, I just want to make sure that our mission is clear. It's about reaching people for the gospel. I love even in Philippians 1.18, we're actually going to talk about this next week. He says, Paul says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This is the most important thing, and the most important thing in our church and the most important thing in your life is that the gospel is made known, and Christ is preached. 
Let's dive in. Philippians 1. This is, we call this our fall vision day. If you didn't get one of those fall vision cards, uh, someone will be passing them out at the end. I do uh, want all of us to respond in some way. But this is us casting kind of a clear vision. This is what this next season is going to be about for us. And we're going to stay in Philippians 1 to do that. Let me read uh, the passage for us. Philippians chapter 1. In verse 6, we'll start and read through uh, the end of 11. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel for God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray as we dive into your word today that you would speak to our hearts. Remove any distractions or things that are on our minds. May we concentrate and listen intently for your voice as you speak through your word, through your spirit. Jesus, give us the next step of obedience that we might follow you even more closely today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, I am a little hoarse today from how much I was worshiping last night. That was, it was pretty amazing. Um, Philippians 1, now to introduce you, reintroduce you to this church of Philippi. I love this little church. Paul loved this little church. I think it was his favorite. He's not allowed to have favorites, but I think this was one of them. He just loved them so much. Not even just loved, Paul liked this church. He wanted to be with them. You know how you have these extended relatives that you love? that you see at Thanksgiving or maybe at Christmas, and you love them, but you don't really like them. And I say that because you don't invite them over to your house on the weekend. You probably don't invite them on vacation with you. They're probably just not a good hang. You love them, but you don't like them. Does that make sense? If we're all, no, None of you are honest. It's fine. It's fine. Maybe it's just me. Okay, I've got a long way to go. Um, <laughs> Paul doesn't just love this church. Now, he loved the church at Corinth, but I don't know if he liked them very much. He was just fussing at them so much. How in the world could you allow this? The church at uh, 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 Galatia, he called them, he said they've been, they've been duped by witchcraft. Like, like he, he was getting at, Paul doesn't do this this church. He loved this church. He doesn't, he doesn't really even confront any real thing other than this little squirmish between uh, two ladies in the church. He's just, he just loves them and he likes them. He had planted this church 11 years prior to this letter. And he just, I mean, he even says here, like, I love you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn to be with you again. He's writing this letter from jail in Rome as he awaits an appearance before Caesar Nero in which he would likely uh, be killed. That's what's on his mind. And yet what's on his heart is this little church. His imprisonment was more of a house arrest, but... In the evenings, he's often shackled to a Roman soldier. Many of these soldiers, Paul leaves, leads to Christ, which is it's just so funny to me. Can you imagine that job or getting that assignment? They're probably casting lots. Who's, who's going to be next to Paul? Frank got the last assignment. Now he's a missionary in Asia. All right, Tom, it's you, bro. Good luck to you. So Paul's writing to this young church with this great fatherly love. And the theme of the book really is joy. Joy in everything past two weeks, Jason's talked about joy in the midst of difficulty and suffering. Incredible messages. If you missed, I encourage you to go check them out. Paul just has this incredible joy. I got three points today, and they're joy and prayer and confidence, and we're going to talk about those. But I want to talk about joy first. The mindset that Paul has is joy. 16 times in these four chapters, sometimes as a noun, sometimes as a verb, Paul talks about joy or he 
admonishes or encourages us to rejoice. And one verse 18 and verse 25 and 2.2 and 2.17 and 2.18 and 2.28 and 2.29 and 3.1 and 4.1 and 4.4 and 4.10 and 4.15. He just wants them to remember joy. Because of what God has done in us and is doing through us, we can be people of joy. Now, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It's temporary. It's very hard to hold on to. It's based on feeling and circumstances. God never promised us happiness. The Constitution might promise you happiness, but God never promised us happiness, right? God promises joy. And God can promise us joy because God is the source of stable and unending joy. Here's what joy is. Joy is this, it's a settled peace. It's an anchored hope. It's a, it's a confidence that everything is going to be okay because God is in control. This is why Psalm 16 tells us, the psalmist says, God, you made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence or in your presence there's the fullness or the feeling of joy. This is not just a little joy. This is this overabundance of joy that no matter what we walk through or any circumstances and the good and the bad and the ugly and the terrible days on the darkest day of your life, you can be abounding in joy because God is the source of unending joy no matter what we walk through. Isn't that amazing? You read these reports of those that have been martyred, even the actual disciples, you can read the reports of them historically of how they were martyred and their lives are so filled with joy even to the end. And that's not just then, you know, there's about 100 to 130,000 people, 130,000 people who lose their life and martyrdom every year, even now. The reports are just crazy how much joy they have to the end do you see it it's a settled peace that knowing God is in control the hope of being with him reminds us that it's not all up to us that we have a heavenly father who loves us and knows us intimately and wants the best for us and he's working on our behalf even through the difficulty and he never wastes the pain and he never misses our tears how comforting is this? I sometimes think when we're, we're in heaven with Jesus, he's going to show us that bowl of tears and show us how he was so near us in the midst of that. It's for this reason. Paul even prays in verse 1. He says, in my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. <clears throat> Friends, joy is the fruit of the Spirit. The reason our world is so miserable is because they're addicted to the pursuit of happiness. Happiness comes from getting what you want. Conflict and frustration comes when those desires of getting what you want are blocked by other people who are chasing to get what they want, but what they want is in conflict with what you want. Does that make sense? And that just makes us miserable. This is evident by the proverbial Karens in society. If you say, if your name's Karen, I'm sorry. That's, I'm so sorry. You've seen these videos of them where they're like in the Jack in the Box and Jack in the Box ran out of cheese and they lose their mind enough to throw a full soda at someone who's getting paid $7 an hour to work Jack in the Box. Like they have any control over where the cheese is going or from. But in that moment, they want the cheese And you're standing in the way of the cheese, and so I'm going to lose my mind on you. Because they have seen, our culture says it, that the pursuit of happiness is everything. But that makes us a bunch of little toddlers. Toddlers are the ones that demand what they want. The adults, the mature, are the ones that give of themselves to do what's right. Does that make sense? Those are two different things. Or, Or maybe this makes more sense. Do y'all have a neighborhood Facebook page? You, you ever looked on the, especially when it comes to fireworks. See, see the, the pursuit of happiness really has great conflict when it comes to fireworks. Because some people just like to blow stuff up. 
and they like to blow stuff up until two in the morning. And that makes them the happiest. If I could just blow things up till two in the morning, I would be so happy and I would have the pursuit of happiness. And others, the adults, <clears throat> we like to go to bed at a decent hour, you know? 10, 11, we'll give you 12, but 2 a.m., come on, bro. Do you really gotta blow stuff up at 2 a.m.? And so their pursuit of happiness, each other, you see it in conflict, right? And when it conflicts with each other, it makes us miserable. And that's why America is a bunch of miserable people. Because we've been pursuing our happiness and we feel like it's God's right. He's given us this right to be happy and he is not. He never promises that. If anything, he says, you have to die to yourself in order to follow me. And I don't want you to jump in too soon. I want you to count the cost because to follow me means death to you. Does that make sense to your dreams and to your desires? And what I'm going to give you instead of that is unending joy and peace that surpasses any situation and the glory of God being reflected through your life and the promise of eternity with me. And it's a trade that's worth happening any day of the week. This is why most marriages fail. Because one spouse is chasing their own happiness. And the other spouse is chasing their own happiness. And so they can't love and serve each other well. And so they have conflict. Like toddlers on a playground. My toy. But Paul reminds the church that there's a better way, that we can have this internal flow of love and joy in any circumstance. Friends, can I just ask you a real honest question? You'd be honest with yourself. Is your life marked by the kind of joy that Paul talks about? Overflowing, abundant in any situation and every circumstance kind of love, kind of joy. Just always joyful. Paul says you could have it. He commands them to rejoice. Who could spend more time there? We want the next. I want us to focus on his prayer. Mindset of joy in everything. Prayer is actually their weapon. It's, it's the greatest weapon of a Christian. Access to praying, to conversation with God, prayer and the word of God together are the weapons that are mentioned in Ephesians as our weapons of spiritual warfare. When you love people, you'll pray for people. This is what Richard Foster says in his book. If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them, which leads us to prayer. The greatest thing that need to happen in a person's life, we can't produce. We can meet felt needs. We can bring our kids to the best schools. We can even teach them the way of Jesus. But we can't produce faith. And we can't cause their souls to prosper. And we can't cause peace and joy to flood a person's life. We can't cause a person's <clears throat> character to be transformed. We can't cause our kids or friends to look more and more like Jesus. All of that happens supernaturally. We can't do these things. You can't cause the chains of bondage and addiction to be broken in a person's life. You simply can't. Only God can. And for all of these reasons, we pray because with God, what, is, what does God say of himself? With, with, with God, nothing is impossible. So the greatest thing that Paul could do for this church, he can't be with them. He wants to be with them. It says later on in the next chapter, for their joy and for their progress. He wants to be with them, but he can't be with them. But he's confident it's okay, so he prays for them. He loves them. He wants greater things for them than he can produce, and so he prays. Prayer is the greatest thing you could do for someone you love. It's the greatest thing you could do for someone you don't even know. Last week, my kids started school, like the rest of yours, a couple weeks ago. I was still in my study break, yeah, two weeks ago. And so I was, I told you about that. I was so excited that they were going to go, they were going to go to school. And I still, I still had two days of study break left. I was just going to do whatever I wanted. And I sat on the couch and drank my second cup of coffee and it was so quiet. 
And I began to get a little fearful. Claire started high school, and Ellie started middle school, and Hud's in fourth grade. And I just began to, ever happen to you get a little fearful for your kids? Because the older they get, the less control I have with them. The, the less, the more inputs they have from other people around them. And I thought about high school and all the scary things that can happen in high school. And now some of you are in here, you are my uh, watchman on the wall in high school. So, you know, keep an eye on my kids, please. I began to just bring that to the Lord and say, God, I'm, I guess I'm anxious and nervous about my kids going to school. And I, I want them to have the right friends, and I want them to hear the right things, and I want them to make right choices. And I just heard the Father speak so quietly to me. He said, Luke, just bring them to me. Just bring them to me again. Just lay them at my feet. I love them more than you, than you do. I love them more than you ever could. And just bring them to me. And it just... You ever had that, that anxious that is just interrupted by the peace of God that just kind of just settles in? I just felt the peace of God settle in my heart, settle in my living room. The greatest thing we can do for our kids, yeah, be a primary faith influencer. Yeah, teach them the ways of Christ. Do all of those things. The greatest thing you can do is labor in prayer for them. Look at what Paul prays for this church that he loves. It's in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more <clears throat> with knowledge and all discernment. This is his prayer. This is the greatest prayer. This is the fall vision day. This is what I pray for us. I've been praying this for us for several weeks now. That our love, first of all, would abound more and more. Now, Paul doesn't really mention whether this love is to be for God or for one another, probably because he intends at some level both. First John made this crystal clear that our love for each other really is the litmus test of whether we love God at all. If you say you love God, First John says, but you hate your brother, then you've deceived yourself and you're a liar. This is a real check, friends, especially in a religious area. If you don't love other Christians, then you don't love God. No matter how loudly you tell yourself that you do, you don't. You've been deceived. Because the love of God outworks itself in our lives to love other people. And not just the people that are lovely. Having said this, I'm convinced the primary expression of love that Paul has in mind, which he's praying for, is their love for each other. He's going to talk about this even later in this little letter. It's similar to his prayer for the church at Thessaloniki. He says in chapter 3, verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Abound, increase and abound. Love already exists in Philippi. As a matter of fact, I think it flourishes in Philippi. Paul is not questioning the sincerity of their affection for him or for each other. There's no rebuke in this prayer. Paul doesn't call out any sin in this prayer. He's not being passive aggressive as if they failed to love and he's trying to bring it up to everybody so that the two or three people that need to hear it actually hear it. No, he's not doing that. After all, he told us in verse 4, he's praying this prayer out of his heart full of joy. And let's not forget the love that was so evident immediately upon the planting of this church. We talked about this a month ago. But as soon as God opened Lydia's heart to receive the gospel, she opened her home to Paul and his companions. And no sooner has the Philippian jailer been converted, does he rush in and care for their wounds and invite them to his house. But he wants to see it increase. He wants to see their love deepen. He wants to see their love intensify. This is, this is why I think this, this is why I love this book. I think what Paul's trying to do like a good coach, he's trying to challenge them to go after more. It's easy just to be a good little church. Let's just be a good little church. And we'll just love the people inside the church. And we'll just turn inward and it'll be all about just us. And we'll just be this cozy little culture of a church. I think that's what Philippi was becoming. Now, they did love the gospel and they supported missions. They were supporting his work all over the world. And Paul says, listen, you, do, you guys, I love you guys. Y'all doing so good. Let's go deeper. I think there's more. 
There's more joy and more love to be had. We never love perfectly in this life. There's always defects in our feelings and hidden motives for others. Ways in which our generosity and sacrifice and service for others fall short. Hidden motives of why we actually love. But I don't need to argue this point. 2020 proved this point for us. If social media taught us anything, it's that some people are really hard to love. Look at the Facebook page again. Really hard, your neighborhood Facebook page. You know, some of those people are in our very own families. It's hard to love them. And to love them like Christ feels impossible. That's why this is so important. You know, I've had people tell me that they've come to Covenant for the worship or even some for the teaching, the kids' ministry, the youth ministry. But let me tell you why the lost world doesn't care anything about that here. They're not, they're not wondering what we're preaching today. They don't care about the precision of our theology. You know why someone who is lost and without hope would come back a second time to this fellowship? Because we radically love each other. And that love and showing that much grace is so countercultural in a cancel everyone kind of world. It's supernatural. It'll captivate hearts. When we put aside petty preferences and selfish ambition and envy, we're going to talk about that in two weeks, and competitiveness. And we love each other as God and Christ has loved us. I did a wedding a couple of weeks ago, and I always remind the groom every time, if you ask me to do this wedding, I'm going to do it at yours, that his job is to love his spouse like Christ loved the church. And it's always a kind of, a kind of a joke, and everybody kind of laughs because we know that's impossible. I've been married to Ashley for 20 years. And with all my heart, I can say, I love her more today than I did 20 years ago. And I'm going to love her more tomorrow than I did today. And most of the time, she makes loving her pretty easy. But if I'm honest, my love has so far to grow when measured against Christ's love for the church. And she's someone I like. How about those people you don't like? And those people you haven't chosen to spend the rest of your life with. Those people that are hard to love. Those people with no emotional intelligence. Those people who pop fireworks at 2 a.m. Those people who say vile things. The people who use their words to cut down. Do you love them? This is why Paul prays that they would increase in their love. Imagine how difficult that we would love people from different backgrounds and political viewpoints and all the different preferences we have. That, that kind of love sounds so impossible that maybe we shouldn't even try it. But this is why Paul says, no, 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 this is supernatural. I'm praying that your love would deepen, that it would abound, he says, more and more. Ashley doesn't like to send me to Sam's because when I, when I come back, she sends me for like, she sends me for the healthy stuff, you know, the gluten-free tortillas and the hummus. And I come back with $400 worth of meat. <laughs> and I walk in, you know, you, you don't have bags there, so you carry it in like basically one item at a time. And so I'm walking it in, and she's like, oh, you got a brisket. Yeah, I did. We could have that on Thursday. Oh, you got 10 pounds of sausage. What are we, are we hosting somebody? Oh, look at all the hamburgers that you got and the ribeye steaks. And the fajita meat, it just, did you get anything else? Look, no, I didn't. This, this, is, this is what I got. And, and the meat on my counter after we go to say, I, I know this because Ashley forgot and sent me to Sam's last week, uh, two weeks ago. Um, but the meat just appears to abound more and more on, on my counter when I come back. And, and this is the same way, stupid illustration, this is the same way that Paul's praying for this church, that their love would abound more and more, not just in the ways that we see it, but even the motives of their love and the extent of their love, and the depth of their love. But then he, he says that their love would abound more and more <clears throat> with knowledge and insight. 
Maybe your translation with knowledge and all discernment. I want to break those two things down real quick. Listen, I haven't preached in five weeks, so we might go a little long, okay? Just love, love the kids' workers when you pick up your kids, okay? Because they're going to be in a little longer. Love with all knowledge and insights. Let's take the knowledge first. Our love must be grounded and flow out of a knowledge of how much we are loved. In other words, to love well, we must understand how we ourselves have been loved by God through Christ. Now, Paul makes this point in Ephesians. Ephesians 4 verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Here's the phrase, the knowledge, just as God and Christ forgave you. Clearly, if we're to forgive one another sincerely, we must be fully aware and, in, 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 aware and in touch with the depths of the forgiveness of God for us. And then immediately following the verses, I think Paul says the same thing here in <clears throat> Philippians 1. Or in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering. In other places, Paul just gets so overwhelmed, even Ephesians, with the love of God. The love of God is just so high. It's just so deep. It's just so wide. Maybe your kid, you remember singing that song, Deep and Wide, Deep and Wide, about the love of God. Paul just thinking, or even the psalmist. Remember the psalmist says, man, if I go up into the heavens, God, you're just right there. Just heart towards me. If I go down to the depths of Sheol or hell, there you are. If I, I go east and west, I, everywhere I go. Your love pursues me. Friends, isn't it incredible that the God of the universe loves us to that degree? Man, he loves us. I think we get a little pharisaical, don't we? Like, like we've earned the love. Like in our, in our, in our own attempt that we like, we like clued in one day and we're like, man, God should be proud to have me on his team. We bring nothing to the team. We're under the illusion. I, I remember when I was a kid, I must have been third grade. I got some new McGregor's. That was what the Walmart shows, some McGregor's. And I remember going to, to PE that day, and I was like, whoever picks me, they're going to get the fastest dude on this playground because I got the new McGregor's. <laughs> Did McGregor's help me run? Absolutely not. I've been slow my whole life. There, there, nothing, nothing, nothing fast about me. You try to scare me, it takes me three seconds to respond. It's just not going to be like, whoa, the joke's over by the time I get it. They ask my family. They just can't do it. It was an illusion that the shoes, it's an illusion that we bring any righteousness of our own to God's team. It is all what he does for us. This is the point of grace, friends. Also a cool, you know, band in the 90s. This is what he prays, that we would have the knowledge of how much we've been loved, that the love of God is inexhaustible. Is that a word? It should be. This is the love of God. This is what Paul reminds Timothy of as he pastored such a difficult church. Timothy was so discouraged. You remember Paul writes in that letter in 2 Timothy? He said, Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of what? Love. That there's no most difficult person ever who's walked the planet that God can't love through you for the rest of your life. That's incredible. There's a time in the Gospels in Luke 7 where Jesus is sitting at this religious uh, leader's house. And this lady comes in with this really bad reputation. And all the people are like, how did she get in? And, and she comes in and she pours this expensive fragrance over Jesus' feet. And she begins to weep. So many tears that she washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And this Pharisee religious person just spouts out, how could you let someone that yuck touch you? You must not know her history. He goes in and tells a little parable. And I love the end of that. He who has been forgiven little loves little. But he who has been forgiven much, I love this phrase, loves much. This is what Paul's praying for, that the knowledge that we would have, that we would understand the depravity and darkness of our own sin in our life. And we would understand the extent that God went to leave heaven, to come and walk on earth, to die in our place, to send his spirit to live with inside of us. 
Then he promised in the gospel of John that he's going to go prepare a place for us. And he's going to come again. And he's going to receive us into themselves so that where he is, there we're going to be. And we're going to have this huge marriage supper of the Lamb. This huge feast that Revelation talks about. This incredible party and celebration. This is the love of God. And this is what it means to know the love of God. This could be an entire sermon, but the base of it is this, that we are filled with the love of God in order to be emptied on other people. And we go empty ourselves on other people only to be filled with the love of God again. It's just inexhaustible. It never runs out. And any time that you find that you're in a situation where you're finding it very difficult to love someone, it's because somehow you turned off the love of Christ somewhere. You put yourself in the place of the Pharisee. This person doesn't deserve my love. Of course they don't. And neither do you and you never have. This is the beauty of the grace of God. Man, I feel like I should preach that part over. Do y'all get that? Do you, do you understand the grace of God? He prays that their love would abound more and more with all knowledge. Then he says discernment. Again, another sermon in itself. I'm going to keep pushing through. Discernment is another word here for wisdom. It's knowing how to love a person that best aligns with God's best for that person. Not just a gushy romantic love. It's not giving people what they want all the time. Because if you give them what they want all the time to make them happy, what are you going to end up doing? Just eroding the joy in their life. That's certainly not the point. My daughter Ellie, she's in here. She loves ice cream. I mean... She loves ice cream. And there's two or three nights a week that we'll be sitting on the couch and it's bedtime. And she'll be like, hey, Dad, can we get some ice cream? I'm like, baby, it's 8.30, 9 o'clock. It's almost time. She'll be like, okay, can we go to Disney World tomorrow? Like, just whatever. Just, just, she loves ice cream. But she can't have ice cream for breakfast. I mean, maybe once when mom's not around. But not every day. She can't do that. That's going to make her sick. So the most loving thing for Ellie is not for me to allow her to eat ice cream all the time. Does that make sense? Sometimes. If you find a lump somewhere in your body and the doctor discovers it's cancer and he comes to talk to you and share the news with you and you haven't heard about it, you're just sitting on the table, you're waiting the results. And I hate how doctors do this sometimes. They tell you on Friday that you think you might have cancer. Hey, come back in like four days over holiday weekend and we'll tell you if it's cancer or not. That's so cruel. But you're sitting there on the table and you're just waiting to hear the news. What's the most loving thing for the doctor to tell you? Is it to come in and be like, you know what? I think you're okay. Don't worry about the scans. Just keep eating Cheetos and take a few uh, ibuprofen. I think you're going to be fine. That's not the most loving thing for a doctor to do. The most loving thing for a doctor to do in that moment is to tell you the truth and to help you come up with a plan to treat the very thing that might cost you your life. That's the most loving thing. That's why loving with wisdom is so important. The question in every circumstance should be, what is the most loving thing for me to do in this moment? And if you ask the Lord, he's going to tell you. And a lot of times you're not going to like it. Can I just, can I just tell you that? He, he even goes on and, and says here. <clears throat> My prayer that your love would abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. You may choose the excellent way to love other people who are difficult to love. If my spouse has wronged me, what's the most loving thing for me to do in that moment? Now, my knee-jerk response is to do the most self-serving, self-protecting thing. But that's often not the most loving thing. When my children are making demands of me, what's the most loving thing I can do in that moment? When a guest sits next to you in church, when your neighbor goes through crisis, when you're alone and tempted to click on an image that's going to hurt my wife and my kids and destroy purity and intimacy, what's the most loving thing to do at that moment? When I see a financial need or a gospel opportunity or I hear someone tell us that a lot of the missionaries have moved out of a place and that they're still a billion or more people that have never heard the gospel. They don't have an uncle that's a Christian. They don't even have never seen a church. They live in complete and utter darkness. 
And we hear that, and we've got 14 Bibles, and we listen to all the podcasts, and we come in here every week, and we just kind of sit and soak up to our butts so big with all this knowledge, and we got these little bitty T-Rex hands, and we're not doing nothing with them. Lord, forgive us for our apathy that he's entrusted the gospel to us. What's the most loving thing for me to do? Well, it's not just to think about it a little more. It's to let that love of God spill out on you. It's to rearrange your life for the purposes of God. That's the most loving thing. It's to give up your vacation next summer and go on a short-term mission trip. It's to go invest in our church planners in New Orleans. It's to go across the street where your neighbor's lost and find a way to love them and listen to them. This is the question that should govern our lives. What is the most loving thing for me to do, Jesus? If this question did govern our lives, the end of this passage would be true. This is what he says. <clears throat> that we'd be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, we'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. We would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. If that question, what's the most loving thing to do, not as what makes me feel better, What's the most loving thing to do? If we would do those things, we would be people who just grow and grow in the fruit of righteousness. Let me say this just real quick. When discerning love rules your heart and you choose the most excellent way, the most loving way, it's not going to feel excellent immediately. As a matter of fact, most times it's going to feel the opposite of excellent. When you overlook or forgive the offense of your spouse, it doesn't feel excellent immediately. What would feel excellent is venting and gossiping. Blowing up in anger, that would feel excellent. But it wouldn't be excellent. It wouldn't be loving. It doesn't feel excellent to confront a fellow Christian of their persistent sin. It just doesn't. This is the last thing I want to do. This is what I've been called to do. So through a lot of prayer and a lot of grace and a lot of sensitivity and seeking to understand and prayed up and, and with the word of God, you, you approach that believer and say, listen, I, I think something's off here. There's some persistent sin that needs to be dealt with. And I love you enough to lose this relationship to see you walk with God again, if that's what it takes. That's the most loving thing to do. Won't feel excellent, but it'll be excellent. It doesn't feel excellent when you... Give sacrificially so you can't go on another vacation to serve the last, the lost, and the least. Absolutely not. It doesn't feel excellent when it's 4 o'clock and it's time for you to leave and go serve the hub on a Sunday night. It doesn't feel excellent. It feels like, no, and we're, in, we're freaking getting a football season. doesn't feel excellent, but it is excellent, and that's where joy comes in. What is the most loving thing? I'm out of time. Let me end with this. Finally, I want you to look at verse 6. <clears throat> we passed over it. This verse and the past month has given me more fuel. And you probably just read over it just like I've done a thousand times. And I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Mindset of joy, the weapon of prayer, and the posture of confidence. This church loved Paul and Paul loved them. Which makes it so interesting why he prayed for them and he prays for joy. Prays with joy because he's confident that he who began a good work in them will complete it. That's a good place for an amen. I'll say it again. That he who began a good work in them will complete it. And he who began a good work in you will complete it. This is such good news that I can pray with hope and confidence for others knowing that God is the one who's most committed to the spread of the gospel and the spiritual transformation. I can pray for other believers and know that God's more committed to transforming them than I am. I can plant gospel seeds and I can know that God's going to be the one that brings the growth. I can labor for the gospel with endurance knowing that God ultimately will bring his kingdom. God continues 
the work. God will carry it to completion. If the Lord carries his return and covenant and makes it another hundred years, that would be amazing. But if it doesn't, it's no worries because God's promised that he's going to carry the work that he began to completion with covenant or not. God was at work in Bozier long before we got here. He'll be at work in Bozier long after I'm out of here because God's the one who starts the work and does the work and he completes the work. He'll continue the work. This means I can disciple people and when they don't grow as quickly as I want, I can be at peace because God's going to continue the work. I can trust that God's going to continue the work. Friends, this means you can trust Jesus with your future. Maybe you're in between jobs or looking for a spouse or walking through difficulty and you're in the mess of all messes and you don't really see the clear way out. Listen, just hold God's hand. He promises he's going to complete the work. And when you're anxious about your kids and they even make some bad decisions, you can trust that God's going to complete the work. This means when I wrestle with sin, I can have joy that God's going to continue the work, that I know there's going to be a day that I do have victory over that sin. Now, none of this means that I don't have a part to play, that I don't have to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. He's going to talk about that. I participate and I partner with him, but God's the one that's going to complete the work. And to him be the glory, Paul says. This is such hopeful news, friends, because this is how we really have a mindset of joy. When you're facing persecution because of your faith, God's at work. When you're suffering because you're walking in obedience, God's at work. When you're wrestling with sin and seeking obedience but find it hard to be as holy as you desire to be, good news, God's at work. When you feel like the journey's been long and you're not certain you can persevere another day, God is still at work. Turn to somebody next to you and say, God's still at work. Okay, now do it with joy this time. Come on, turn next as I, God is still at work. We're going to try it one more time. Listen, we're not Presbyterian. I love the Presbyterians, but we can talk in the thing. We can do this. Turn to, some, turn to somebody again and say, God is still at work. Friend, God is still at work. Now, if you forget everything else in this sermon, don't forget that. God is still at work. Not only is he at work, but he's willing and he's able to complete the work. No matter what obstacle, God loves to work in and through those who love him. He can't stop and he won't stop until he returns. God is at work. This is God's work. And he'll keep doing it until Jesus returns and throws Satan into that pit of fire and makes everything new. And we live with him forever. God is going to continue to work until he comes back. Come on. We have a clapping class. I know we're a bunch of white people, but listen, do we? (sighs) Friends, our God does not grow weary and tired like we do. He does not stumble or fall. He doesn't forget his promises. He's not distracted or busy. I'm going to invite the band back up. Every promise in Jesus Christ is yes and amen. He who began, I'm confident of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work will carry it to completion until the day Christ returns. And this is the confidence that we have in Christ, that the work does not depend on you. Now, God wants you to partner with him. He's inviting you to participate in the joy of it. But he's the one that does the work. So to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to linger with those truths this morning for a little bit. You have a connection card. I want you to really press in. Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? What would you have me do? What would be the most loving thing to do in Covenant Church to love this body well? Maybe you got one of these little cards and just as the Lord speaks, you just write it down. Maybe it's in one of these categories or somewhere else. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. What's the most loving thing? 
What's your next step of obedience? Some of you came in here today and you, you just don't even know that God really loves you. You, you. you missed the whole point of all the scripture. You caught all the rules, but you missed the heart of God. He just radically loves you. He wants you to come home. He wants you to come to him. That's the invitation. Let me pray for us. God, I love you. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word and how it just lights my soul on fire. Holy Spirit, how you speak to us and work with us and forgive us and how you promise that we can have so much confidence in you that you're going to complete the work. And as we sing here in a minute, Lord, I pray we sing from the depth of our heart to a God who loves us and not just loves us in word, but loves us in deed that he sent Jesus to die on a cruel cross for us. Innocent as he was, blameless. Yet he carried our sin to that cross so that he would be condemned so that we could be accepted. He would be broken so we could be healed. I pray we never get over that as a church. Lord, if there's those in this room that don't know you, I pray today would be a great day to take a step into the family of God. Maybe they've been kicking the tires on this thing. Some in here, they're part of your family, but they haven't really been walking with you. They've been living for their own happiness, maybe. They've been chasing other things. I pray today is the day that they find this abounding joy. Some of us, we've, we've hurt those close to us, maybe some even in this room. We've gossiped about them or said things to their face. We hurt their feelings. And we just need to go make that, those things right. Even before we sing, just go put our arm around someone and say, man, I love you. Would you forgive me for the way I've acted? Lord, this is my prayer for this church, that we would have a mindset of joy and we would <laughs> use this weapon of prayer we would have posture of confidence. Lord, do in us what you desire to do as we pray, as we sing. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. A big prayer team at the back. I encourage you to take some time to pray. Fill out this little card if you like or connection card. Do what God puts on your heart to do. We'll sing together as a family.